This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And the editor-at-large themselves, Liel Leibowitz. Hold on, I just have to count to 12 because, you know, the Omer. Oh, right. Damn it. Another year when I said I was going to do the Omer and I've not been Omering. It sneaks up every year. <sighs> Haven't Fudge. missed a day this year. I'm I'm 12 for 12, baby. I guess next year is the Omer year. Okay, today on our show, our Jew of the Week is Jonathan Rosen, who joined us to talk about his new book, The Best Minds, a story of friendship, madness, and the tragedy of good intentions. I can safely say it's one of the five best books I've read in the past five years. I think it's it's phenomenal, and, and I think you'll understand why. Here, here. Our Gentile of the Week is Armenia. No, not the supermodel Armenia, the country Armenia, the entire country. We're bringing you a dispatch from Liel's recent trip to Yerevan, where he learned about Armenia's birthright program and why it is nothing like Israel's. But speaking of Armenia, we are going to Chicago. It's your last <laughs> chance to see the original gang in action. The, uh, the, the Armenia of the mid, of the Midwest, as it is now. The Holy Trinity will be there this Sunday at Mariah Congregation in Deerfield, Illinois. You can link out to tickets by going to tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. And we hope to see you in Chicagoland, as they say, in Chicagoland. Stephanie, what's up with you? So what's up with me is that this past Sunday, I was part of the annual gathering of Remembrance, which is this event, big event in New York City, um, put on by the Museum of Jewish Heritage, held at Temple Emanuel, like big deal. Everyone's there. Chuck Schumer spoke, all these people. Anyway, I was part of the, the program and I was I was really honored to be there. But by the way, I'm sorry, what what a what a power move right there. As if we could have any item from our own personal lives that follows. The gathering right. of it's, remembrance I mean, it's very, of the I, Holocaust what is, what of the Jewish people. Say in Sex and City? Well, now you've mentioned the Holocaust, and I can't <laughs> say anything. But here, I'm telling you here the thing that I could not say on stage at Temple Emanuel, which is there's a really good history of this event in my family. One of the first ever annual, before it was annual, I guess, one of the first ever gatherings of remembrance at Temple Emanuel was the time that my mother met her future in-laws. Wow. And they were dating for a few months, and basically my dad said, we're going to go to this event with my parents. And what proceeded to happen is that they get to Temple Emanuel. They walk in, they go to the front seats, you know, rows are filling up. My dad says, okay, hold this row for my parents and their friends. I'm going to go out and get them. So my mother <laughs> has to save a whole row of seats. At Temple Emanuel. At Temple Emanuel. Bunch of Holocaust survivors just trying to sit down, watch the show. And she's like, nope, nope, nope. These, And they were like, who are you? And she was like, I don't know. Basically, anyway, he said, you have to bounce Holocaust survivors was, at Temple Emanuel <laughs> at an event in their honor. Butniks to the left, non-Butniks <laughs> to the right. Comes back with his parents. And then like, she meets them for the first time. And she was like, it was the most stressful 15 minutes of my oh life. Oh my God, that is horrible. Jockey. <laughs> So I, I really wanted to go up there and say that on stage, but I didn't. But then, you know, I was we were sitting there sort of at the front and I was talking to this woman who was a survivor next to me. And she said, oh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a journalist. She said, where do you work? I said, tablet. She's like, wait, what's your name again? And I said, Stephanie Butnick. And she said, you know, I've been to your events. I love that Liel Leibovitz. Yeah. And I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> what? This was not what I was expecting you to say. She's like, I think I went to your event, uh, you know, when your book came out on 16th Street. I think I have your book. And I was just like, what? It's like lovely woman. I just was like not expecting to talk about unorthodox. <laughs> it was honestly, it was it was a wonderful moving. Uh, well, what, moving what can event. I say? Um, Lador Vador, right? Lador Vador. My, my fans, <laughs> my it fans was, are the best. 
I can't top that. I can't top that. All I did this week, it was great, was um, I road tripped with producer Robert uh, up I-91. We did the I-91 Oppenheimer memory journey. Uh, this is for, I think, a segment uh, that's coming out on my last show next week. Um, he's not telling me what he's doing with all the tape, but we went up to Springfield. We drove by the Ancestral Friendlies. We drove by my childhood home that I lived in from ages two to 18. Then we drove by the home that my parents moved to when I was 18 and have lived in ever since. We stopped by and said hi to my parents. And then we doubled back down I-91, pulled off at my high school. My um, he, he looked at the trophy case where my debate trophies still reside in Chafee Hall. Along the way, I, he got me to sort of create a master thesis about friendlies that ties together Judaism, America, the Holocaust, Isaac Bashevis Singer, <laughs> Lord Jonathan Sachs. Like I went into some sort of zone as I was driving and he had this microphone in my face and, and he said, you know, what he, he asked some very deceptively simple question, a ninja-like deceptively simple question about, you know, why do you think that friendlies mean so much to you? And what does it have to do with Springfield and family and meaning or something, you know, something that, that kind of prompted me to say something incredibly long-winded and portentous. He sent me off the edge, but it was great. It was really fun. And he said things like, the fribble is just a metaphor for the fribility of human That's existence. Basically, basically <laughs> all of a sudden I was talking tall. It was sort of take one, meets friendlies, meets unorthodox, meets gatecrashers, meets Robert Scaramuccia. Would you say the student, in this case, your student, Robert Scaramuccia, has become the teacher in that he, car? He has become the friendly soda jerk. He is dispensing. <laughs> he's, he's taking a long pull on the draft soda out of which they make the root beer float. But I love that like the Marcus Ode is like half your bar mitzvah, half your college graduation, half your wedding. Like We shall <laughs> see. Coming up I next mean, week. I, I haven't the faintest idea what, what you all are up to. Anyway, then I came back and I will just throw out there because it was such a perfect cap to the day. I get back, um, was shuttling Anna to a choir rehearsal when I got a text from our friend Evan, who is the coach of Davies' t-ball team. He starts t-ball. He's four years old. And his wow. first t-ball practice was today. And I was, he said, where are you? And so I thought, oh my God, I've totally spaced on my son's first ever sports practice. What kind of dad am I? And so I ended up, you know, returning the other kids home, dropping them off, and then got Davey to the second half hour of his t-ball practice. Wait, it was just practice. It wasn't a game. No, it was just practice. It was his first practice. Like they don't they're even know- They're practicing whole... standing in place because they're four. <laughs> well, that's right. They're they're learning how to run the bases in the correct direction. Right. Like the bases go, go counterclockwise. telling left from right. It is so moving though, seeing all Did these Did you feel like children. he missed out with that first half hour? Did he miss like the directionals? If he doesn't make uh, the travel team when he's 14, it'll be because he missed the first half hour. But it was just so sweet. So things have been heating up in Israel over the past few months. In January, Netanyahu's coalition proposed sweeping changes to the structure of Israel's judicial system. In response, hundreds of thousands of Israelis took to the streets in protests that have continued for weeks on end. These protests seem to have grown into something bigger beyond just issues of left and right. We haven't gotten into it on the show, but now that Liel, our resident Israeli, is back from his recent visit and we're about to mark the 75th anniversary of the founding of the State of Israel, it's time to talk about Israel. Liel, where have you been? I 
returned to the motherland, to Israel, to uh, renew my anxious affiliations. Look, a lot of listeners have been writing to us for about 15 weeks now, which is when the mass protests in Israel have started and said, you guys have not said a word about this. What's going on? And I wrote to some privately and I said to to you guys, and I think at some point also on the air, I don't want to just talk about it because this seems different and it seems real. And I, I want to have a chance to go and actually talk to people, which is what I did now for about three weeks. I spent, I mean, I've been to Israel several times before during these last couple of months and participated in these protests, reported on them. But this time around, I really did the work. I spent a lot of time with several of the protest leaders. I spent a lot of time with several of the proposed reform leaders and uh, government people, members of Knesset. I talked to a lot of people and a lot of friends. And I got to tell you, um, on the cusp of this, uh, the 75th, uh, Israeli Independence Day, I am feeling deeply troubled because what I saw in Israel was an indication that things have taken a turn from the political to the metaphysical, that people are really no longer talking about the reform or even about Netanyahu's government or his coalition partners, all of which are you know perfectly reasonable topics for discussion. But I think what they're really talking about, and, and a bunch of people I talked to completely agreed with me, is what kind of Israel they want to see. And in a really weird way, they're having a discussion that Zionism, the miraculous liberation movement that returned us to our indigenous homeland a hundred or so years ago, have been kind of grappling with from day one. And this is going to be a, a huge oversimplification. But for the sake of this argument, I think each one of the camps wants a totally different thing. One wants a state for the Jews and the other wants a Jewish state. One wants a state in which Judaism's long tail is just this, you know, almost addendum to the values and practices and traditions and mores of normal Western countries. And the other wants kind of exactly the opposite. And it's not that compromises aren't possible on a practical sense. And it's not about, as some lazy analyses would have it, about a Jewish state and a democratic state being somehow incompatible, which is totally not the case. It's just two very different visions of what Israel should be. And when you start talking to people, well, you know, are you willing to compromise here, there, or the other? They say, yeah, but that's actually not the state that I want, not the state that I fought for, not the state I thought I was living in. And it doesn't necessarily translate to left versus right, and it doesn't necessarily translate to Mizrahi Jews versus Ashkenazi Jews, or even religious versus secular. It really is, you know, one vision that looks at Israel as the goal being we fought for so long, so hard, just to be a normal people, just so Jews could live like all other people, meaning in a nice Western democracy that values its IPOs and its Netflix shows and its quality of life and its security. And, you know, yeah, the the symbols of the state happen to be Jewish, but that's just almost like the core. And the other people saying, look, our Jewish state could completely contain democracy and we're not talking for a second about some kind of theocratic, religious, Iran-like thing. But we do want a state that is deeply and inherently interested in exploring new and creative ways of, of living Jewish lives, not of just emulating everyone else the tensions are running higher than I've ever seen them run. I've had friends I've known since I was eight or nine years old speak with such force and with tears in, in ways that really I've never seen them do before. And I don't know how this is going to get resolved except for 
the fact that Israelis are finally having this discussion that, again, you know, Herzl himself began maybe when when he pondered whether the Jewish state should be in Africa as the British government at the time proposed or whether it was only permissible as part of a sort of a messianic return to the much too promised land. So I thought I'd ask how you guys felt about this. Well, that's really depressing because that's like that's that you're basically saying it's not about reforms. It's not about the judicial branches, blah, blah, blah. Checks I mean, look, balances. some of us go to friendlies and some of us get tear gas. No, no, but, but 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 I think what you're basically saying, this is bigger than what it seems to be about from the outside, which is that there is a yes. specific reform that's been proposed. There are people who are very against that. There are people who are against Bibi Netanyahu and they are sort of protesting what they feel is the sort of more religious, more right wing creep. But you're actually saying this is something bigger, like this is sort of a collision course. Was this always going to happen then? What it always seems to be the tension that I've picked up on and what people, you know, my relatives there say is that like there are the people who go to the army and work and do all these things. And then there are the people who don't, right? Like there are these sort of Haredi population, which is growing ever faster, who don't, you know, put their lives on the line for the country, don't necessarily contribute to the economy. And I feel like those undercurrents of deep, deep tensions and resentments, I feel like on both sides, right? It comes up every few years when it's like, should things be open on Shabbat? Or like, should the buses run on Shabbat? Like, I feel like it's- That's exactly right. We as Americans don't understand. Like, we can't understand that, that even being a conversation that we're having because it's so, so foreign in a way that like, a lot of these fights are between Jews who want modern- lifestyles and Jews who sort of are pulling away from that? Is that an oversimplification? Not really. I mean, it's it's kind of, I think kind of gets to the heart of the matter. Uh, so look, you know, a bunch of people I talked to said, okay, look, a lot of the protests are saying we are so sickened by the fact that Haredi Jews don't serve in the army and because they don't work, they don't pay taxes. And in fact, a lot of the demonstrations have focused on you know, going into Haredi neighborhoods and sort of saying, hey, man, time's up. It's time for you to join. And then people I talk to from the other side say, right. But when we say, okay, well, we're actually really willing to consider this. But, you know, for us to be in the army, we're going to need things like a different level of kashrut in the kitchen or, you know, some different rethinking of the shared public spaces between men and women. When we say that, then the very same people who say, we demand that you join the army say, what? So now you want to make our army into some kind of theocratic nightmare handmaid's tale scenario? And what I heard from a lot of people from from that side, from the supposed religious side, is basically an argument like, look, you don't really want us serving in the army or working as we are. You just want us to not be religious anymore. You want us to live the same way you live because for you, any person who wants a space that is gender segregated, for example, is some kind of benighted creep. And this is really at the heart of so much of it. For example, has been a lawsuit recently, a private college, no state funding whatsoever, coming and saying, okay, well, you know, we cater to the Haredi population. We think it's really important because a lot of Israelis are demanding that, you know, Haredi learn more kind of like core curriculum type of skill set, STEM, English, et cetera. That's what we want to do, but we want to do it in a way that respects the customs and mores of this community. We want to do it in a gender segregated way. 
And a few organizations sued the college and said, no, you can't do it because separate is never equal. And the court largely sided with them, which basically means, right, then you can't have your way of life in this Western democracy that the protesters are imagining. You can't even have the liberty to decide for yourself that that's what you want. And the protesters on their end saying, correct, because your values are actually not compatible with the Western democracy that we fought so hard for. And it's really kind of interesting and difficult because I can't point to any one side and say, oh, a disaster, oh, total victory. On some very deep level, Liel, and I've read your writing on this and I take it very, very seriously. One of the places where people are very sympathetic to what I'll call the right here, the religious side here, which is, again, those terms are not perfect, but you'll let me have them always says, but we don't want a theocracy, right? We're fine with democracy. If that's the case, then there's a country that actually honors those kinds of exceptions and carve-outs very well and doesn't make highly religious people with these kinds of objections serve in the military so long as they kind of, you know, plead their case in the right way and that lets them take their kids out of traditional schools, basically by and large, you know, with some fighting around the edges. Uh, and it's the United States, right, where you can be Amish and basically lived in a totally hermetically sealed community where the Satmars, despite occasional skirmishes with the government or the New York Times, basically educate their children how they want to, where there are whole towns in the South that, despite Supreme Court rulings to the contrary, have Christian prayer before every football game because they there's so much power devolved to the state and local communities. And the reality is we have a, we have a pretty robust compromise where you can be Satmar or Amish or fundamentalist Mormon. And frankly, with rare exceptions, the government doesn't come for you. But then the government, you know, also creates massive secularized spaces for the majority of people who are not particularly religious. And it all works fine. What religious Zionists of a particular stripe want is something more Jewish out of the government of Israel. In other words, they don't they're because they have the carve-outs they want right now for military service and things like that. So just coming at it from that side, right? And I, I grant you that the secularists, what they might want is to exterminate or extirpate religion. But the religionists want the government to do something more Jewish than just let them be. And See, I guess my question, and my question is, what? What do they want that's more, they, you know, that is that makes it a more Jewish place on the governmental level, more woven into society, aside from the holidays and, you know, you have different days when everything shuts down. But my sense is that they want something different out of the Tel Aviv secularists too. Mark, it's an amazing, amazing question. In, in fact, it's, it's the only question that matters. Uh, and and I, I, I'm going to answer it, but I'm going to start with a kind of a weird, almost historical observation, which is if you study, I mean, even if you just read the Wikipedia entry about the birth of Zionism, you would notice the supremely interesting fact that all these founding fathers of the movement could not, for the freaking life of them, agree on what it is that the state that they were so desperately trying to found is going to be like. Some you, said these were it Jews. You were saying be, these were Jews? Oh, no, but these were <laughs> Jews like to, to the extreme, right? Some said this will be a Marxist heaven where we will redeem the land to work. Some said, no, this would be a normal Vienna-like, you know, kind right. of it'll be It'll be a salon. It'll Mediterranean. be a, a Vietnamese, Viennese salon where you can get analysis table. in the afternoon. Right. And, Others said, yeah. no, it's a military stronghold where we will be right. strong. And the religious people said, no, it has to be religious. And all these people miraculously, and Stephanie, this is counter your, your, your argument, all these people miraculously had absolutely no problem, for the most part, 
getting together, working together, and, and pursuing what they perceived correctly was their goal, which is the establishment of the state, kind of agreeing that the precise nature of the state would be figured out at some later date. My feeling, increasingly, is that the glue that actually brought them together was the fact that Zionism wasn't really new at all, and not, as we like to think, a kind of national 19th century movement to return the Jews to their homeland. Because look, if you ask Italians today, uh, 180 whatever years after the Resurgimento, the, the bringing together unification of modern Italy, how many of them still define themselves as Garibaldis, right? After Garibaldi, they would look at you like you fell from Mars. Like the question would be incoherent. Uh, and here we are 75 years after an independent, robust Jewish state has been accomplished, and we still define ourselves in the terms of the movement that brought us there is Zionism. So the question is, what do these people want? And I would answer what these people want is a Jewish state that allows a lot of space and exploration for Jewish culture in all its myriad amazing forms to grow. And the problem is, and it's a very real problem, and I say this with pain, but also understanding for the other side, uh, these people then are sitting and watching the the realpolitik of the country, and they're saying, sure, we may have exemption from army service for Haredis, et cetera, but we have about a third of the population that desperately wants for public transportation to operate on Shabbat, desperately wants stores to be open on Shabbat, that doesn't think it is ever okay to have events in private or public spaces that are gender segregated. And that actually makes us feel kind of weirdly unsafe to experience and explore Judaism in the one state whose sole goal, and this is the really important part, right? Whose entire essence is our return to our promised land where we get to kind of be reborn as a people. It's interesting, and I don't mean to be snarky about this. It's interesting that you're not landing on specifics except their feelings. It always sounds to me like there's something snowflakey about the Haredi position here, which is, yes, we might be allowed to do all these things, but we we feel maligned for doing them. Well, that that is democracy. That's exactly what it would look like in a democratic state that allowed for expressions of Haredi Judaism as well as secularism, as well as a lot of things in between. And I say this as someone who has a cousin who went there to try to help found majority conservative Judaism there in the late 60s and is still living there with his 30 grandchildren, right? What it looks like is everybody feels maligned. They don't feel comfortable. They don't feel like the state is behind them. The state isn't behind them. The state is in some ways neutral to which expression wins out. So part of it is say, well, look, you get out of military service, you get your study, your your yeshivot, your yeshivas, you get your stipends. At, At a certain point, you have to say, this is pretty much as good as it gets as a lifetime of stipends and study. And that that may be what the compromise looks like. And by the way, I'm you're right. I'm, at the moment, I'm letting some of the secularists off the hook who might want to go into their rooms and say, in your private homes, you can't gender segregate. And there may be unreasonable incursions on that side too. But it may be that this is what it looks like. And it may also be that you don't get to not hear motors on Saturday. That, that That's a little bit unreasonable, actually. There are places in the world you can move to to not hear motors on Saturday, but probably a densely populated, tiny country. And it's Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yeah, is is not one of them, right? But the other thing I'll say is, so, so again, I would be arguing to say, it seems to me things have been working out pretty well for both sides, leaving aside the questions of whether it's working out for Arab citizens, Druze citizens, uh, you know, guest workers, et cetera. For the Jewish communities, which is our conversation, I'd say like, shut up and go home. This This may be as good as it gets. The other thing I'll say is that as a student of Christian history, um, I have a, you know, my expertise to the extent I have it is in what does it look like when you found a country 
or, or in the United States, states on Christian principles. Remember that Massachusetts and Connecticut had established Christian churches, state churches, long after the United States abolished it. A lot of our states still gave money to the congregational churches and said, this is the official church of the state. You're talking about friendlies again, right? Absolutely. <laughs> when you study Christian history, whether it's the, the nation states of Europe or the American experiment, you realize the last thing you want to do is actually have a state religion because then it becomes corrupt, moribund, deadening, and people flee from it. You know who has state religions? Scandinavia. The Lutheran church is still the estate religion, technically, of Denmark and Sweden, and nobody goes to church. The Church of England is the church, the official church of the United Kingdom, and as a result, nobody goes. If you want really, really, really robust Judaism, what you want is a state that does not try to be the engine of the Judaism, but rather just kind of protects your boundaries and lets you do it in your homes, in your kahilas, in your shuls. So it, I, ironically, what the Haredi Jews of Israel have been given is the greatest gift in the world, which is a largely secular government that they can fight against and be mad at and that protects them. And that's actually how you build robust religiosity, which is why the United States is still more religious than most of, say, Northern Europe. I have a question. Uh, I, th I think that's very, very beautifully put, and, and it, it sort of instigates me to, to ask the following question. What would you say, and this is, you know, one of those Robert Scaramucci, deceptively simple questions <laughs> that hopefully would have some kind of- Buddha-like you know, koan, Zen koans. What is, what is, what is the point uh, of, of Israel? Ooh. Why does it exist? Uh, well, as I argued in my- As you said, piece, there's a lot of- Zionism lot of places, for refugees. Yeah. There's a lot of places for Jews to be safe and, you know. Yeah, no, I think, I think. Upstate New York. Well, I, I actually think the point of it is a place where we know Jews will always be safe. I actually think the point of it is, as I've argued, Zionism for refugees. And, and by the way, a, an ancillary benefit of that will be that it will allow for manifold expressions of Judaism to grow and flourish within its borders as it has. The, the mistake is wanting the government to have a hand in that, to try to co-opt the state to your religious project because states are very bad at religion. They make it worse. The last thing you want is a minister of Judaism in Israel. Stephanie Bethnick? Nothing to make religion less cool than like instituting it as policy. No, right. I think it's always seemed like there is almost this like a compromise is sort of what it, I think it might actually be a compromise, right? Like this idea that like you have the Knesset, but then there's also the rabbinate. Like I don't quite understand like the marriages in Israel are very weird because you have to go through this like ultra religious rabbinate when most of the people or some of the people, at least a lot of the people are secular. So I feel like there have been, maybe it's not an uneasy like coexistence. Maybe that's until we have this conversation, I hadn't thought that this was sort of like kind of the point maybe, or like this was a not a feature, not a bug. Like this was sort of the beauty and the, the tension of this, that there would be different types of people living together. There would be different types of sort of Jewish expression at the same time. I mean, I just, I guess my question is, I go back to my first thing that I said, which is like, this is really freaking depressing. This makes me sad, right? This makes me sad to think that Israel, which is a place that is for so many of us, this safe haven, this haven of, I don't know what exactly, but like it's sort of what you said, like this idea that I don't, one of you said this, both of you said this, that like Jews would be safe there. And so this idea, first of all, nothing more Jewish than like Jewish infighting, making <laughs> the place that we were all supposed, like this beautiful place that we were turned to almost just full of drama and conflagration. But um, 
I don't know. This make this all makes me sad. Is that weird? And I think that so, that's what so a lot me, of people so feel because you... wait, no, this makes me sad because I think what we a lot of us feel is this deep attachment to Israel, even if we're not like don't know so much about like there is this weightedness that I think we all feel this 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 real connection to this place, even if you've never been there, right? Like. And I think that's why for a lot of Americans watching this who don't quite understand this, who are like, what is this left, right, religious, secular, what actually is going on? I think it's really hard for them, but I think that they feel this sort of like pit in their stomach where they're like, I don't want this. I don't I don't know what happens here. And and I don't know what I as someone on the sidelines can sort of do to understand it. Look, I think I think the pit in the stomach is is merited. Uh, and Mark, look, I agree with you a billion, not a hundred, not a thousand percent, a billion, a billion percent. A billion D uh, that that government mandated anything, especially religion, is horrible. Uh, but in a weird way, that is actually precisely the point of this judicial reform. I'll, I'll tell you a very quick story that that I still can't get over. Several years back, there was a private private religious school in Israel that practiced kind of heinous segregation between Mizrahi and Ashkenazi girl students in the school, kind of arguing that the Mizrahi girls had like more lax religious practices and adherences, and therefore they should be kept a little bit segregated from the Ashkenazi girls who were really hardcore strict. It was completely revolting. The Supreme Court stepped right in and rightfully said, guys, no, (laughs) you cannot have that kind of segregation. Some of the parents said, okay, we hear you, but this is what we believe. So we choose to take our daughters out of school, which in a private school, in a free country, is precisely what you should be able to do. And we will send them elsewhere. The court, and and what I'm about to say sounds completely fictitious, but alas, is true. The court said, no, uh, because if you do this, then you would have denigrated the court. You would have practiced a kind of loophole around our judgment and you would keep this injustice going. And therefore, if you take your daughters out of school, we will send you, the parents, to prison, which happened. 35 of them went to prison. There are a lot of examples like this, uh, is what I'm saying. But nobody likes examples of high court stupidity more than American liberals like me, (laughs) right? Like we're living in the age of high court stupidity in the United States. Uh, Everyone likes courts when they're on their side and not when they're not. No, but Mark, here's the thing. But But, but we have a constitution we could debate. Israel doesn't. That's exactly the problem. I I understand. I understand. So who adjudicates is a huge issue. Well, I understand. But of course, the, the other option is democracy, which for most of Israeli history has been against the Haredim, right? But now all of a sudden, the coalition's not. And so all of a sudden, democracy, you know, 51% seems like the right answer. But the idea that, well, obviously democracy, 51% is a better answer than the courts for the safeguarding of certain fundamental right, quasi-constitutional human rights, is, is of course, entirely cynical because that's something right. that, that the Haredim only decided when they got the, the, the majority coalition. So I don't know exactly how their polity should figure this out, but the idea that somehow it's the courts that are illegitimate versus the democracy strikes me as, as sort of entirely special pleading. I mean, it's not... I don't think it's anyone there is arguing on principle. They're arguing strategically or tactically to try to get what they want. Both sides are. You know, that's exactly right. But but, I mean, probably you should get a constitution. You know, here's the answer. The answer is when you get a constitution and then agree on how you're going to divide powers and much as the states does, or in a different way, England, which also doesn't have a written constitution, but has figured out other ways to honor precedent, a mature country, a country that's just farther along in its years, actually figures out solutions to these things. But no, 
it won't leave the Haredim fully respected because what it is to be to be a right, diverse. But, but hold on, but Mark, that's but that's exactly the problem. We have been eluding a constitution, or a constitution has been eluding us for seventy five years, precisely because no one has wanted to have this very, 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 very painful and almost impossible debate, to which there's only one answer, and which leaves anywhere between a third and half of Israelis feeling like they just lost a country that they fought for and that they want to have. I'm not sure why, if you ended up with some sort of American-style checks and balances, sharing of powers with a constitution, everyone would be, a third or half of the country would feel so. I mean, according to you, the secularists don't need for there to be no Haredim, and the Haredim don't need everyone to be Haredi. They They actually do have compromise in their soul. So why can't they get there? Because compromise has worked very well for us, and I believe it would work very well for us again. But to do it, we have to go through this discussion that we're having now. Look, Mark, I, I think you're you're completely right. And, and and these are issues that, you know, Ben-Gurion dealt with and Begin and Robin, like every single Israeli leader tried Ben-Gurion to kind of imagine. Ben-Gurion at the airport dealt with this. Uh, as as he was standing in line <laughs> Waiting for, for three his and bags, a half hours. Fighting at the baggage Was claim. the airport named something? Was it like JFK Lod, used to be Idlewild? After the, city, after the city it was in, Lod. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> it, it was called LaGuardia. LaGuardia. Uh, La, LaGuardia. <laughs> it's been um, a while. You know, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. Um, the, the difficulty here is that when you start having this discussion, the question that you're really asking is the question I just asked you, which is what kind of country do you want? My answer to that would be, to me, it's not just about the safety and, and well-being of Jews. It's not just a safe haven. It is very much the manifestation of our millennia uh, old messianic hope of returning uh, to our to our indigenous homeland uh, and practicing and building a, a Jewish sovereign state that allows us to explore and get closer to the vision of the prophets of Israel. And these disagreements uh, are with us from time immemorial, which in a very awkward segue, I would say uh, is why we here uh, at Tablet Magazine uh, decided that rather than indulging and engaging in this kind of political knife fighting, name calling, which not only is not helpful, but honestly, like I'm not feeling it. Look, I'm I'm the first one to jump into a good knife fight, but I see the merit and the pain and the frustration and the hopes of both sides here. And I think the best thing that we could do right now um, is to go back and actually study and educate ourselves about about the discussions we're really having, which means really understanding Zionism and studying its core questions, its dilemmas, uh, and its and its key texts. Because honestly, these questions, these, these century-old questions are precisely the questions being debated in the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Haifa and Netanyahu right now. Look, I, I hear I hear all of that. You know, the 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 debate goes on and and Israel does have to decide in the way that the United States decided with some founding documents, what is it that we really one, I think what I would caution the people who have fantasies of sort of really robust religiosity as prescribed or safeguarded by the state to think about is what it would mean for the Satmars in New York City, just as a thought experiment, if they controlled the mayor's office and the city council. I actually think that wouldn't be good for them. You know, I don't think it would be good for them to be on the hook for the policing and the sanitation and all that. In fact, it would, it would if nothing else, dilute their own community sense of 
Torah study and religiosity and separateness, among other things, it would make them much more secular. And one of the interesting ironies about what's going on there is, I guess I would say to both sides, be careful what you wish for. That should be Israel's new state motto. Be you careful. wanted the Jewish state, <laughs> be careful what you wish for. <laughs> excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. One of the founding fathers of Unorthodox, uh, in a very direct way, is Jonathan Rosen, who was at Tablet Magazine back when it was called nextbook.org. He's a somewhat legendary, I would say, New York editor, writer, Tumblr, intellectual Jew. And his new book is the best thing he's ever done. It's called The Best Minds, A Story of Friendship, Madness, and the Tragedy of Good Intentions. Uh, we get really into the book in this interview. So I will just say it's about a close childhood friend who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and whose life took an unfortunate and violent turn. You should all read the book. And if you don't believe me now, wait until you hear this interview. Jonathan Rosen, thank you so much for being our guest. Great to be here. Uh, usually, you know, maybe one of us will read the book. The other two will skim it. Some of us will read a few chapters. In this case, not only have we all read the book, but we all spent the last couple of weeks or months saying, this is seriously one of the greatest things. Like, I can't stop thinking about it. So as I wish for every single mindful human being to be as obsessed with it as we are, I'm going to ask you, to introduce and, and tell us the story of this remarkable masterpiece. Oh, my. Well. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no it pressure. only took 10 years to write it. It's the best book since the Talmud, <laughs> Tractate Nazir. And I will hum a few bars. Yeah. It's the best book since your book about the Talmud, but go ahead. Right. Uh, so it's hard to say what the book is about, but it is about uh, my childhood friend, Michael Lauder, who lived on my street and who was my best friend who competed with me and I competed with him. We went to the same camp and the same schools and the same college. After college, he had a psychotic break and was diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, but had already applied to Yale Law School and got in. And he went 
The New York Times profiled him as a heroic person who had managed to defeat an illness. Uh, and as a result of that piece, Hollywood bought his story and publishing company bought his story. And he was going to be telling the story of his triumph, in a sense, over the illness, although you don't triumph over the illness, which was a tragic flaw in the presentation of the story. But he stopped taking his medication and killed the person he loved most in the world. And so my book is an encounter with all of that. It was telling the story, but untelling other stories that went into the tragedy as well, I guess. There are so many things to talk about from the sublime to the ridiculous, from, from mental health and the way we talk about it and think about it to Jewish Westchester. But before we get to any of these issues, I'm really curious because the, the reconstruction here is so incredibly meticulous. The sense of being right there. I mean, you recall exchanges, conversations. You recall what kind of clothes, fancy clothes he bought when he got his fancy consulting gig. You really sort of have this kind of reawakening of, of memory that makes it seem so profoundly engaging. Because even though I knew from reading the blurb and from talking to you what, what was going to happen, I felt so in the story that when it happened, it, it comes as a complete shock. How do you dive into this? How do you will yourself back into this because part of the thing that you also do, right? I mean, you're also there and it's not you, wise and all-knowing Jonathan Rosen from the peak of his years. It's you at, you know, 11 and 12 and 13 and 15 with all your insecurities. How do you get back into that headspace? And isn't it terrifying? Yes, it is terrifying. And it's a great question because it really was how I was able to write the book. It's probably also what kept me from writing it for so long. I... I mean, I knew it was a story about severe illness. I knew it was a story about killing. The fact that I had to re-experience my bar mitzvah was also quite <laughs> terrifying. And also the realization that in a way, by imagining my way back into childhood, it was imagining myself to the, into the time before so that it wouldn't seem inevitable because it wasn't inevitable. And the more that happened, the more it seemed possible to write the book, although it it did take a lot of strange energy. Uh, I did keep a lot of journals and I dreaded looking at them too. I didn't want to encounter any uh, part of myself, but eventually I allowed that to happen and, it, and the book kind of flowed from there. So I had to go backwards in order to create a space from which I could go forward. And ironically, the book was originally called No Going Back, which is a line from a movie and a Western uh, there's no going back from a killing. But the first sentence of the book is, I am going back. And somehow the paradox of that, just even though I changed the title, was always present, I guess. So the place you're going back to initially is New Rochelle, New York, circa, remind me what 1973. Years 1973, when you're how old? 10. When you're 10. And you were in a particular milieu. You were the child of intellectuals. You were from a family of bookish people. Michael was also, he was a super smart dude, maybe even smarter than you. Definitely, Definitely smarter than you. Tell us about that milieu. It was like, I, I felt I was reading a little bit about my family, but from a cooler town and uh, better books on the shelves. And, you know, it was sort of, we were like, I was like, oh, they were varsity versions of my JV family. Yeah, uh, Michael's father was a college professor and my father was a college professor. I was born in Manhattan. We moved when I was seven to Brookline, Massachusetts for three years. And then we moved to New Rochelle, a Westchester suburb, about half an hour outside of Manhattan by train. 
we were not in the fashionable section of New Rochelle. Uh, we were not in one of the giant palazzos. My mother did not like the suburbs. She always talked about it as if she was, you know, like in Gorky where Sakharov was sent, that it was a kind of exile. But uh, still, there was quite a world there, even though I was somehow raised to see the suburbs as exile. But ex- exile from what exactly, I'm, I'm not sure. There was an expectation that not just that you would be smart, but that being smart was itself a kind of salvation and that you weren't going to make something or necessarily even do something. You were going to think something and almost in a magical way that was going to secure your future. I, it's, it's, it sounds absurd when you, I describe it now, but it was, it was definitely something we shared. And so the fact that he was very, very smart, did that stop people from seeing that he was also very, very sick? When he became sick, for sure it did. Uh, for me too, by the way, because he read at warp speed. I was dyslexic, although I didn't know it at the time. So I was an incredibly slow reader. He had a photographic memory. You know, he picked them up all the words at one reading and then could just repeat them. Whereas I was always having senior moments, even though I was 12. And so for me, I always associated my brain with, uh, it required subterfuge and fakery and concealment. He, he was all overt. He both had a very large personality, had enormous self-confidence and arrogance, uh, but he was also smart in all of the demonstrative ways that made you feel somehow he had mastered the world. It was the same with writing, by the way. In my family, if you could tell a story, uh, you were somehow master of the chaos that you were telling as if it not just that the victors write the story, but to write the story is to be the victor. Mm-hmm. And both those things were true for Michael. He was very smart, and people thought his law professors considered him brilliant even though they knew he could not do the work. And he presented himself as a story. And the story, even if it didn't, if it wasn't complete, he was the teller of his story, which made him seem as if he was the master of his illness and even of its destiny and its course. For me, and maybe it's because of where I'm geographically located so close to the the scene of, well, not the scene of the literal crime, but the metaphorical one at Yale Law School. So for me, that was the beating heart of the book where he's at the place that's as hard, much harder to get into than Yale College. I mean, getting into Yale Law School is like, you are you are the master. You're, you're going to go clerk for the Supreme Court if you want. You're going to become a law professor. You're going to, whatever, become a Supreme Court justice someday. And he's there and he can't do any of the work, as you just said. And the professors keep helping him along and passing him along. And then they create a special fellowship for him after he graduates because he can't do the work at the summer law firm job that he gets. And basically, they keep enabling him. And I just, to me, it felt like this is where the rage comes through. It felt, even though you were writing in a fairly cool and objective way, I feel as if what you're saying is all these well-intentioned, super smart people basically let my friend keep failing upwards to the point where he, um, he ended up in prison. Is that too tendentious a reading? Well, you're totally correct that there was an astonishment I felt as I discovered that he really couldn't do the work. But I don't think they necessarily even saw themselves as accommodating him at his expense. But there is a moment where one of his professors told me, I never thought he would be a Yale lawyer, which is fine because some of our best students aren't. He was someone who I thought would be an advocate for people with schizophrenia who had been to Yale Law School. 
But I knew that Michael had described himself as a Yale lawyer even before he went. Why would I work at Macy's, which was what had been suggested as a slow, intermediate kind of work as he recovered what he had lost? Why would I work at Macy's or bag groceries when I could be a Yale lawyer? And so there was a gap. He interpreted the accommodations as a recognition of his genius. And that ultimately, of course, did not do him a favor. And one of the prof- another professor said to me, I've often thought, if I spent less time thinking what an amazing place Yale was for taking him and more time wondering what his own experience was like, it might have been better. And so that sense of thinking you're helping someone by accommodating pieces of the story, let's say, that his brilliance was enough even if he couldn't do the work, was in a way, uh, did come at his expense. And I feel like that is, it's kind of like when they reconstruct the dinosaur in Jurassic Park and they use like frog DNA. And it's very close. It might be the dinosaur DNA, but it's not. And so something terrible or tragic or unexpected is going to happen. They all made it in this meritocratic world when it was very hard to get in as a Jew to colleges and it was their own brilliance that, in a sense, the gave professors. them the yes. It gave them the authority in their minds, without even consciously realizing it. I think to bestow that on other people, almost as if it were a matter of getting knighted rather than getting an education. And so there were many awkward things, especially because they had clerked for the judges who had changed the commitment laws. 40 years before. So the reason he was out of, he wasn't institutionalized is because of the work they had done to deinstitutionalize people like him so he could be at Yale Law School instead of in a mental asylum. They had participated in a world that saw hospitalization and institutionalization as a kind of analog to the civil rights struggle, that you would tear down the walls and set people free and stop judging them. But since judging, say, black people by the color of their skin is a superficial racist distinction, but making, but a, an awareness of someone's actual illness is an entirely different matter. It was an unintentionally unfortunate association that many people had. The culture itself embraced it. It became the way you would advance your cause was to make it an analog of the civil rights movement. So many, many, many things came together. These were wonderful people. And in interviewing them for my book, they were having an encounter just as I was having an encounter. They were being very open about coming to terms with what they had done, what had happened. They certainly didn't think it was going to lead to a tragic killing. But even long before that, they didn't wonder about so it quite. Can you tell us sort of what he did, the crescendo where this leads? Yes. So it's a strange thing because Liel was asking what it was like to go backwards. And I did it precisely so that I could reimagine what it was like just to have him as this wonderful friend and enjoy hearing him tell me stories in the schoolyard. It's a strangeness to leap to what wound up happening. But what wound up happening was that he stopped taking his medication. And while the movie was getting written and Brad Pitt was going to play him and they were getting ready to start shooting and people were wondering if he had been working on the memoir, which he was not working on, he began to think that his uh, fiance, who he lived with, his girlfriend, was an alien and that she wanted to kill him. And there were times he wouldn't let her into the apartment. And there was a growing sense among the people around him, his caregivers and those near him, that something was happening that was terrible, but partly because they thought they were honoring his autonomy, even though it was actually allowing his illness, 
partly because there was nothing you could do at this point. The hospitals had been emptied. The laws had been changed to shut the door behind the hospitals that were emptied. Because so many things had taken place, really people were, in a sense, powerless or felt powerless. And so what wound up happening is that he stabbed his fiance many times and fled and fled to the campus, ultimately of Cornell. And I knew the second I read that, that he was there because he'd been in a program when he was 16 that we had both competed to get into. In my fantasy, he was fleeing to his childhood, but it was later explained to me by the forensic psychiatrist who found him not responsible by reason of insanity. He was fleeing because he thought a non-human alien, as the psychiatrist put it, was going to torture him to death. I'm the one who wanted to get back to childhood. As I was reading this book, it struck me that, at least in part, it's a sort of thinly veiled metaphor for America itself, or or more accurately, a very specific strand of the last 30 or 40 years in American life, in which, as you said, wonderful people with great intentions had this you know, robust imagination of what the society could be. And it was a story. It was a story that in some cases did some nice things, but in many cases went horribly awry and and led to a lot of misery that it's still kind of at the core of so much of our kind of socioeconomic cultural life today. Did did you think about any of this as you're writing the book or or did you just stick to the story? The story at first, I wasn't even sure what it was, as I say. It was kind of an encounter with a feeling. But as I worked on it over the years, and I've divided it into the house I grew up in on the short street I shared with Michael, then the house of psychiatry, a literal house he spent time in, which was owned by two psychiatrists who were very active in community psychiatry, the house of law, which was the Yale Law School, where he went, but also the role law plays, and finally, the house of dreams, which was Hollywood. But of course, all the other houses were also houses of dreams in a way. And law and psychiatry had kind of gotten married along the way. So I certainly didn't start out thinking that I was writing about all these things, Liel, but as I worked on it, I often felt my, I sounded like a 60s conspiracy nut, you know? This, everyone's involved, man, you know? It's like the CIA was testing LSD the same time that they, psychiatrists had antipsychotic drugs, but they were calling delusional experiences mind expansion, but they were calling antipsychotic drugs chemical straitjackets, and, and everyone felt in, seemed to be involved. So it was almost as if, although I knew that Michael had killed Carrie, it felt like a murder mystery in which everybody was somehow implicated, including me, you know, including things I thought were wonderful. The very fact that the Times profile of Michael allowed him to tell his story in such, embraced his own story, partly because he told it so well, but he said that you know, sometimes when he was interviewed for a job, because he had come out as someone with schizophrenia, he referred to himself as a, as a flaming schizophrenic. He was asked if he was ever violent. And he explained to the reporter, well, that's a very hurtful and hateful stereotype. But I knew that when he'd had his psychotic break, he had been patrolling the house with a knife because he thought his parents were Nazi replicas. And so the possibility of violence, had it been acknowledged, would have been stigmatizing in the way people often imagine, but might have helped destigmatize his illness because medicated, he, he was not violent. It was that sense of good intentions at every stage that kept, that kept rising up. And, 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 and in that sense, it started to feel large and 
large in a, in a tragic way. That's the subtitle of the book, The Tragedy of Good Intentions. Now you've you've told the story, you've harnessed it, you've you've put it into words, you've done, you know, what in your family is is the thing to do, right? To take control of something or to understand it and grapple with it. So where does that leave you today? And also tell us a little bit about Michael today. I guess I just wonder what what it feels like now to be here talking about it, to be talking about Michael, to be talking about your childhood. Weird. It feels very <laughs> weird. Partly because I spent such a long time working on it. And I wasn't sure for quite a while that I was going to be able to write it in a weird way that probably allowed me to write it the way I ultimately felt I needed to. But it was also, it's like I lived in a house without any mirrors for 10 years. You know, I didn't measure what it was. And now all I do is look at myself. I mean, I keep having to formulate it and imagine response. And I'm sure that there's, there's always been a feeling of complex shame or confusion about what it means to tell a story when part of the tragedy I was telling was people thinking that they knew the story. People told Michael his story and expected him to tell it back, or he told them his story not quite as it was. And we lived in, grew up in an age of psychoanalysis where someone actually decided that stories were medical, like medicine, and they would heal you, and you were made sick by Greek mythology. And so, like, even though I grew up in a very literary house, it turned out that everybody had plundered the library for parts and was operating the whole system based on narratives. And so to tell a story was itself complicated. And I don't believe, which I used to believe and was kind of raised to believe, that the world exists to be put into a book, you know, as Mallarmé said. He's, he's hospitalized still, right? But Michael is hospitalized. And in theory, he could be de-hospitalized because he was he was Look, convicted by reason of insanity, right? The person so, who killed, uh, the person who shot Reagan has been released, right? And he could be. The two criteria for his release are that he acknowledge what he did and that he acknowledge his illness, because I think the feeling is that those two things together will make it easier to comply with you know the requirements of his illness in a way, but. What's strange and what I also came to learn is that a long time ago, early in my research, a forensic psychiatrist said to me when I asked him about who gets found not responsible by reason of insanity, it's very rare. He said, usually if the crime is terrible, they're just found guilty. It, it, it's, it's as subjective as that because people simply don't want to allow that no one was responsible or that an illness was responsible. But he has been in a forensic hospital, he's, it, this, this happened 25 years ago. And so it's very hard for me to know, you know, what his state is from day to day. And, and you don't get released immediately. You get gradually put in a, in a less restrictive place if that's in fact what you, you know, need at that point. But it's also the case that there's a family. I mean, Carrie is a missing person, although I tried, it was very important for me that she not be absent from the book. I didn't know Carrie, the person Michael killed. It was too painful for her family to speak to me. They wrote and told me that. They said, it's just too painful. Did you have any ethical concerns about writing the book? Did you feel that Michael wouldn't want you to write it, that you were betraying him or causing too much pain for her family? There were times where I felt I was betraying everybody, including myself. Um, and I would never have even considered writing the story had it not been a public story. I couldn't have written it had it not been a personal story but I certainly would never have written it had all the worst elements of it appeared on the cover of the post twice. 
once with a picture of Michael under a headline that said psycho in giant letters. Another time he was on the cover of the Post and they simply ran excerpts inside from his book proposal. The very words that had won him the Hollywood deal and the book contract were kind of testifying against him because they made him sound like what he was now being styled as, which was a, a delusional person full of violent fantasies. And had he not been profiled in the Times first, everything about that his story in its best and its worst were public and were written about and were going to be projected on the screen. And in a sense, somewhere between the heroic portrait in the Times and the psycho killer on the post was the person I knew and all these things I also didn't know. And so filling in those spaces to me felt less like the revelation of a private sorrow. I did, however, I was very conscious of not wanting to betray Carrie. Michael's college roommate, who's, who I knew, who when I tried to talk to him, I, I learned from his wife that he had, he had died of cancer when he was 49. He had died weeping for Carrie and saying all we ever did was think about Michael. And I didn't want that to happen either. And that's also real. And so I'm sure that it took me as long to even start for all these reasons. And I'm sure that it took me as long to write it for all these reasons. And the best I could do was insert myself into the story as well and strip myself as bare as possible too and present it all together, you know? And you have given us a beautiful book in the process. Jonathan Rosen, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. To the mailbox, I have been pretty offline this last week and haven't checked in on the Facebook group, but I've heard that stuff's popping there. What's going on? Last week with Ariel Nissenblatt, she was talking about how <laughs> the theory that maybe you can't listen to Jewish podcasts on her preferred, I think it was 1.8 listening speed. And so Rebecca Cabot posts a screenshot of her podcast app and she says, am I actually alone in this? I imagine others must also think that they talk too slow on 1x speed. <laughs> she listens to us at 1.9 who, who are these people? Speed. And oh people, yeah, Sarah Beth Berman was like, yeah, I listen to 2.5x on Overcast. <laughs> I can't, Joe, how about this? Joe Orth says, I don't understand why people say that they talk fast. I'm assuming they are just Jews, not us Jews, in particular. Right. I've never had a problem at 1.75. And then our original poster, Rebecca, replies being like, every time they joke that they're a 1x podcast because they talk so quickly, I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I love well, this idea. Well, challenge that, like, accepted, listeners. Like, we'll talk really, really fast from now on. So that you're. You do not talk uh, fast. You, you think you talk fast, but you don't. We listen to you so fast that you don't even talk fast regularly. What are you talking about, Stephanie? We don't talk that fast. Um, <laughs> And there were a lot of letters this week to our unorthodox at tabletmag.com email address, but really only one letter to bind them all. Hi, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. My wife and I moved to Israel over 30 years ago and we're huge fans. We've always felt a great connection to your show. 
but you took it to a whole new level with your conversation on Dr. Seuss's, or as Liel tells us, Dr. Seuss's <laughs> green eggs and ham discussion last week, particularly on the heel of your Passover Seder discussion. I try to enhance our regular family Seders, which can get a bit repetitive, with some new, fresh material. My material shares the loving irreverence to our religion, culture, and holiday that you guys exude every week. A few years ago, I wrote Green Eggs and Chametz and shared it at the Family Seder. I thought you would all very much enjoy it as well, and I'd be thrilled to the moon for you to share it on one of your shows, if you thought it would be appreciated by the J. Crew. Thank you, Gary. Green Eggs and Chametz will now be read for you by Liel Chometz Leibowitz. <laughs> Music, please. It's actually Liel Afikomen. Right. It's my rap name. Let's go. Do you eat chametz on the Chag? I do not eat it. I just unplug. I do not eat chametz on the Chag. I do not eat chametz on Passover, not until the Chag is over. I do not eat it with knedel, even if it just touched the ladle. I would not eat it at the Seder. I'm going to have to wait till later. I won't eat chametz at the Kotel, not even at a five-star hotel. I won't eat it with the maror. If I did, it would be a horror. I won't eat it with the brisket. You can try, but I would not risk it if the flour even touched the yeast. It could ruin the entire feast. If the food had been fermented, the Afikoman prize would be relented. I won't even eat the rice. With a matzah I must suffice. I cannot even eat legumes until the post-holiday period resumes. I won't eat chametz with the wine although the merlot is just fine. I can't eat it with the karpas although I don't quite get all the fuss. Would you, could you, at the shul? Eat it, eat it, forget the rule. I would not, could not at the shul. You may like them, you don't know. You may like them, forget the I would not, could not in a shul, not in a car. That won't be cool. I cannot eat them in my socks. I cannot eat them with my locks. I cannot eat them at my table. It's just not right. I'm just not able. I cannot eat them here or there. I cannot eat them anywhere. I can't eat chametz all week long. I cannot do it. It would just be wrong. With chrein, with chrein, could you, would you eat it with chrein? Not with chrein, not in a shul, not in a car. That won't be cool. I would not, could not in my socks. I would not, could not with my locks. I could not eat them with my rav. I could not eat them with a glove. I would not eat them here or there. I would not eat them. I do not care. I will not eat them. Sorry, ma'am. I won't eat it with haroset for all the dads would get upset. Now, all of these rules must apply. Don't ask me. Ask your rabbi. But after Chag, I can go to town and eat the chametz upside down. I will eat here and there. I will eat it. I won't care. I can eat it on the bus. No one will even make a fuss. But as to ham, that's another drama. For that one, you better ask your mama. <laughs> well, I did not see that <laughs> ending coming. Uh, Gary, koshercasual.com. What Dr. Seuss book do you have for us next, man? Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. So, I recently traveled to Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. It was an amazing trip, not only because Armenia makes the best brandy in the world, shout out to Ararat, or because at some point I realized I understood a bunch of words because Armenian has a lot in common with Aramaic, the language of my beloved Talmud. 
But what really blew my mind is, well, just how Jewish it all felt and how really a lot like my native Israel. A young country that only received its independence not too long ago, constant attacks from its neighbors, a genocide that looms large in the public imagination, and a birthright program designed to bring Armenian kids from the diaspora to visit the motherland. But whereas Israel's birthright trip, the inspiration for the Armenian project, is a whirlwind week in the Holy Land with Bedouin tent night and soldiers on the bus, the young men and women who travel to Yerevan have a very different experience in store. One that could teach Israelis and American Jews a lesson or two. What is it? Have a listen. This language you're hearing, it's Armenian. That's because I am now in Yerevan, Armenia's capital. Why am I here? And why am I telling you the story on the universe's leading Jewish podcast? We'll get to all of that in a second. But first, I would like you to meet some new friends of mine. Armenia as a kid is a like state of mind. It's an emotion. It's like a responsibility. This is Armin Medikians. He was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. He went to a fancy law school and became a super successful entertainment lawyer. But he still felt like he was missing something, some connection to an ancient promised land halfway across the world, a country he was told his entire life was his people's real motherland. And so Armin decided to put everything on pause and go on birthright. If this sounds incredibly Jewish to you, it's because Armenians and Jews have some truly remarkable similarities. Both are teeny tiny nations. There are less than 3 million Armenians living in Armenia and about another 7.5 million living in what they, like us Jews, call the diaspora. Both have suffered a genocide. Between 1915 and 1917, the Ottoman Empire massacred about a million Armenians in cold blood, inspiring one Adolf Hitler to say that if the world didn't care when Armenians were slaughtered en masse, no one will make a fuss if the same fate befell the Jews. And yet, in spite of their trauma, or maybe precisely because of it, both Armenians and Jews went on to punch well above their weight everywhere they settled down while still pining for this ancient and embattled homeland. So when the Armenians learned that the Jews had a birthright program paying for young folks who'd never been to Israel to come on down for a week or so of just getting to know the place, they were intrigued. It's a bridge to bring Armenian young adults from all over the world to Armenia to experience the country in a way that's beyond just tourism. This is Sivan Kebakyan, who runs Birthright Armenia, and he's being much too polite. Because when he and his colleagues looked at the Israeli birthright model, they realized that although all studies show that the program is wonderful and successful and effective in all sorts of ways, it lacked that one thing that they wanted most. 
it's important to have long-term impact, not just a one-off experience, but what is that launch experience? What does it look like? How do you design it in a way that has a dividends, pays dividends down the line? But how to do that? American Jews certainly haven't answered the question successfully, which is why, according to the latest Pew study, while nearly two-thirds of American Jews 65 and older say they feel very or somewhat connected to Israel, for Jews 25 and under, that number is less than half. So Sevan and his team bet on time. Instead of just staying for 10 days, like people who go on Birthright Israel, the people who go on Birthright Armenia come for four whole months. They live with local families, they find work with local companies, and they spend their free time touring the country, taking classes, just hanging out with the locals. The idea here is to create a real, lifelong connection to the place, and more importantly, a real, lifelong connection to the people, which, if we're being honest, is much easier said than done. Because if you've grown up in just about any faith tradition and had to spend your afternoons or weekends schlepping to some synagogue or church and learning about some country far away and some language you don't really speak, well, you may not love all of this. Natalie Makarian sure didn't. Absolutely hated it. And I wish I tried harder to this day. I always think... Every Saturday, my mom was like, okay, we have to go. And I was like, no, my friend's having a birthday. And I would scream all the way there. And then the same thing happened the next week. And now I look back and I'm like, if I just studied a bit harder, my Armenian would be that much better. So I don't regret going at all. I'm glad my parents pushed me into it. But yeah, at the time it was, it was annoying. But I never really resented it. Like I never was like, I wish that I could just be Australian or I wish that like... I wasn't different. Like, I always appreciated it. Like, I felt sorry for the other kids that they didn't have this, like, extra part of them. Like, I thought that would be so boring. Okay. So you grow up kind of resenting having to spend Shabbos doing something other than hanging out with your friends, but you're also really proud to be this thing that's totally different than anything and anyone all around you. But you don't want to be, you know, too different from anything and anyone all around you. Here's Armin again. You can live an entire day, in fact, I had an uncle who did exactly this, live an entire day in your own Armenian subculture, your own Armenian, like, biosphere, you know? Go to Armenian stores, listen to Armenian music, get the news beamed over from Armenia, speak to your wife and kids in Armenian. You're not, you're not integrating that way. And if that's not difficult enough, the folks organizing Birthright Armenia realized that their challenge was not only to attract young Armenians, but also to appease their parents, many of whom were wondering why their young adult children, raised as Americans or Australians or Brits or whatever, would pick up and move to a small country that only received its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. There are different Armenians who are living, you know, side by side in the same apartment building. They're different. Those who leave Armenia, they left Armenia for a reason. And they left Armenia, some of them never look back. Others have some yearning. Their offsprings who are now coming through our program are often having this, this, this challenge with their parents. Because when they say, you know, mom, dad, I'm going to Armenia with birthright. Some of them get the reaction of, good job, absolutely. You know, you go, you, you kind of recreate our base and then we'll follow you. And others are saying, you're crazy. We came to Los Angeles to give you a better life. And now you're going to throw it all away by going back and wasting your time. 
Armin's parents, thankfully, were the supportive sort. They even took him to visit Armenia once, back in 2018. He loved it, but a few days of sightseeing felt enough to him. That was kind of a very romantic experience for me uh, to be here with my family. But even then, it was still like, okay, you know, I'm kind of ready to go back home now. It was two weeks. Like, I saw the sights, saw all the things that I was obligated to see here as a, as a tourist. Went back home. So what could bring a guy like that, single, successful, American, yet deeply proud of his roots, back to Armenia? In part, it was just that the timing was right. And I think it was the feeling, too, of like, look, you're 32. You're not getting any younger. Maybe you wished you did this that you when you were 22, but you know, right now you're single, you don't have a wife, you don't have kids. If you don't make this decision now, when will you do it? But there's something else going on. There was a war. Another thing Israel and Armenia have in common is a bitter and bloody conflict with their neighbors. And in 2020, Armenia found itself at war with Azerbaijan. And all of a sudden, Armin felt something different. He felt a strong sense of patriotism that wasn't there before. I'm not, I'm not going to the front lines and holding, a, holding an AK-47. That's not something that I'm here to do. There are others who can do that. But I, what I can do is offer my expertise to help develop the country in, in some way. The war also put life in America in perspective. There, there's an expression in Armenian, uh, or at least an expression that my tutor told me. She said, look, you guys don't actually have like a real legit enemy. So there is a sense of like you kind of creating things just to get upset about in your country. And, and they may be valid. These are really important kind of social issues that I think the Western world as a whole is grappling with. But, but I think they're not as immediate as like, hey, there is an enemy on your doorstep that wants to eradicate your people and would prefer that you, the borders of your country didn't exist. I don't think America has that pressing of an issue with, with, a, with an enemy on its border, quote unquote. At first, Armin thought that maybe just doubling down on studying the language would do. So he got a tutor and he worked really hard and then he got really good and then he switched to another more advanced tutor based in Yerevan. And this tutor eventually told me like, look, Armin, uh, you're fluent now pretty much in Armenian, but you have to ask yourself like, why are you, what are you, what are you doing with this language? You know, like this language, you can't just learn it for fun. You know, it has to be useful to you. You have to be using it every day in like a practical setting. And so it was time to go to Yerevan. Birthright Armenia just made it easy, matching him up with career opportunities and a warm, adoptive family. His enthusiasm was real, and so was the culture shock. Look, I guess one thing you don't realize when you're here is it's a post-Soviet country, after all. Um, and so there are certain things that you may be used to back home that simply don't exist here. For example, if you're living in an apartment in the city center, you may have to like unplug all the appliances just to ensure that your hot water is running effectively in the shower. You know, the other thing is like, look, I guess something that surprises you, it's humbling. You know, you come here, you're a diasporan with what you think are like these big ideas, these things that you want to change overnight. And, and people live here and people have been living here for some time. And they may not necessarily be all that receptive to what you think. Natalie, too, was a bit overwhelmed by some of the mechanics of day-to-day -day life. There's not really a concept of lines here or waiting for your turn for things. You know, there's a classic, you're waiting in the grocery store, people cut in front of you 24-7. You have to learn to, like, you know, stand your ground. And when they weren't jostling her in line, 
Many Armenians, Natalie soon learned, just seemed surprised she was there in the first place. Every conversation I have with every taxi driver is just like, why have you come? They can't understand it. So they're not really like, go back to where you came from. They're just like, can't understand why we would come back. I just try and say like, if we don't come back, what's going to be left? Not to be dramatic, but I try and phrase it in a way that's like, if we don't have Armenians repatriating and people keep wanting to leave because they see life is better in other countries, then what's going to be left? Like we have major brain drain because people can go and get higher salaries in different countries. So if we can't show Armenians here that we're willing to come and live here because life here is livable, then what, like, what's to stop them from leaving? I don't blame them from wanting to go if we won't come back here. But Natalie wasn't deterred by any of it. Sure, she had some hiccups along the way. We got to the hotel and I like said something to the staff, but in English, because obviously that's my default. And they like didn't understand me. And then everyone like laughed. I was like, oh yeah, I should speak Armenian here because that's what everyone speaks. And when she started speaking Armenian and thinking of herself as more Armenian than Australian, things began to change. It didn't feel like you were on a holiday. It kind of just felt like you were in like another place that you should be. Like, not like belonged sounds cheesy, but just another place that like, yeah, of course, like Australia, Armenia. But Birthright Armenia wouldn't let her not belong. The program helped her find a roommate and a job. And within weeks, she felt herself just at home in the Yerevan wasn't really like settling into Armenia. It was like settling into a new community of like people that I found very different and crazy than like traveling here. So like in the first week you have orientation and then you meet all of these people that have been here one month, two months, six months, a year. Uh, and they're all here for the same reason. So it was really cool to be surrounded by like like-minded people. And if you're surrounded by like-minded people, especially after a lifetime of being the odd girl out, the one Armenian in the class, the kid who had an ethnic last name and whose family ate strange foods and spoke another secret language, why would you ever leave the place that felt so much like home? I was like, I'm just going to do three months in Australia, three months in Armenia, and I'll go back and forth, back and forth. Um, But that hasn't happened because I don't want to leave here. Like, I my friends, my life, my work, just being in this country. Like, obviously I have all of that in Australia. I have my friends, I have my family, but I don't want to spend every three months like in Australia. I just want to be here. It's been a year now since Natalie's birthright trip ended, but she's still living in Yerevan. But is repatriation the program's goal? Is the idea to get every young Armenian to move back to the motherland? Again, that too is a question many American Jews are asking themselves, especially when faced with anything from rising anti-Semitism to the soaring cost of raising a Jewish family. I asked Seven if Birthright Armenia hoped all of its graduates one day make Aliyah and move to Yerevan. Repatriation is definitely uh, a goal that we have. But it, it is not uh, something that is realistic for everyone. I think the term that uh, we like to use is mental repatriation, which is you know realistic and strong and sustainable engagement with Armenia regardless of where you live. So we have to admit that not everyone's going to move to Armenia. But that does not mean that you cannot engage with Armenia. 
Armin agrees. He's nearing the end of his birthright trip and planning to go back to L.A. He's hoping to use his connections in the TV and film industry in Hollywood to create a platform for Armenian stories to reach a wider audience. And he's planning to come back to Armenia on a regular basis. So maybe it's time for all of us who want their kids to grow up and love Israel to learn from the Armenians as they had once learned from us. Maybe it's time to set up programs that let young American Jews spend more time in Israel than it takes merely to see the Kotel and hang out on Bedouin tent night. Maybe it's time to visit Yerevan and take a few notes so that one day, every American Jew talking about Israel will sound just like this. I loved it. The first time I came here, I was like, this is the most amazing place I've ever been to. It was my favorite place I'd ever traveled. Like, it was unlike anything. Mazel tovs. I would like to begin this week with two mazel tovs. One is to the B'nai Mitzvah Kiddush Committee of Bethel Kesser Israel, which prepares the food for our congregation's wonderful B'nai and B'not Mitzvah. And uh, we're in process of uh, putting out a huge spread for this coming Shabbat, which brings me to the uh, somewhat uh, premature mazel tov for this Shabbat, which is the special day of our school's wonderful congregant, Jesse. And Jesse knows who they are. And I'm just going to say that to everyone who knows Jesse, they know what a an extraordinary person Jesse is and what a wonderful day it will be. So a mazel tov there. Uh, Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I do. I have a post-tax a mazel tov to my accountant, who is also my brother-in-law, David Silver. He does our taxes ah. every year. He waits for us for a very long time to submit our forms to him. We, we do not remit payment to him. We love him. He's amazing. I don't know why he does it, but he does our taxes. You do <laughs> not really, remit yeah. payment, Sam, I am. Nope, I Liel? will not. <laughs> not to the uh, state. I have a double, a double barrel uh, Passover-related Mazel tov, as I had just returned from the most holy. First of all, to my cousin, Eyal Zonenfeld, who hosted us for an amazing Israeli Seder. My first Israeli Seder in like 20 years. And there's no second holiday. And Israelis read fast. So this was a fast and furious and delicious and delightful Seder. And to my dear friend and friend of the show, Rabbi Stu Halpern, who presided over a Pesach program in a hotel in Israel and looked just a little bit less joyous to do so when I noted that the hotel where he was staying is indeed the hotel where I had my bris. <laughs> but he did wonderfully well, and uh, I think he had a good time. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and it's produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. The team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, and Daron Rousquet, and there's administrative support, is there ever, from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaBrosa. You can follow us on all the socials, and you can get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 1001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Jay Sherwood at Temple Shalom in Colorado Springs. And we come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. All right. Uh, we good? I'd like to go watch the Mets now. <laughs>